Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey everyone, welcome into episode two of our year through the New Testament. I'm on a roll uh, as we continue in Luke. So uh, we're in episode two on that. Hopefully you've been enjoying the other things we've been doing, our conversations with our Russian friends and uh, just what we've been doing lately. So uh, and we're, we're booking some, some more fun uh, guests to have on. So mm-hmm. things are doing well in podcast land, right, Rob? Yeah, absolutely. And this is episode number 199. So our next episode, we're going to celebrate. Are we going to have cake? Well, I am. I don't know about you, but well, are you going to Uber eat me a cake from, from Oh, Lisa? I should. I, I could do that. Huh? <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Yeah. There you go. All right, cool. Yeah, well, 199. Anyway, let's jump into tonight. So we gave an overview of the gospel of Luke last time, started jumping into some things. What, what, are, what are we going to do uh, tonight? We're going to really start to unpack the message of the gospel of Luke. And what I think is so great about this is that We've kind of set the table with Matthew and Mark, and now Luke is going to take us that extra mile. So we're really going to unpack the kingdom of God. What does that mean? What does that look like? Especially this revolutionary aspect of the kingdom of God. You have this kingdom of God being, uh, or I mean, Luke's whole writing is to Theophilus. So he's uh, probably non-Jewish. He's probably a Gentile, maybe a convert to Judaism. Like we, we don't know a lot about this guy. You, I know you have some theory, theories on who he is, but what are some of the challenges that Luke faces in, in writing to this non-Jewish guy who's following the Messiah of Israel? Yeah. So as we get through, especially tonight's episode or today's episode, whenever you might be listening to this, just bear in mind that Luke is writing to this man named Theophilus, who likely is a member of the upper, upper, upper class, one of those 3% in Rome, who's an elitist, a Roman, a Gentile. And one of the things that Luke has to do now is he has, whenever the gospel is going to a, a Roman, a Gentile, into the Gentile world, he's got two difficult obstacles. Number one, he has to explain to the Gentiles how a Jewish Messiah is relevant to them. And the reality is this is not a good thing or not, not an easy thing for the Gentiles to believe in a Jewish Messiah. They're going to have to overcome some stereotypes, most notably that the Jews were simply not respected. So why would I believe in a Jewish Messiah? Think of this. If you picture the Roman Empire in the Mediterranean world, Israel, Jerusalem, Judea, Palestine, whatever you want to call it, is down kind of in the bottom corner of the map. But it really is kind of the extent of the Roman Empire. They're like the other side of the tracks. Yeah, yeah. To it, use it's that language. the frontier mm-hmm. and it's not a noble, a noble place. And so like we talk about Pilate, who was the procurator during the time of Jesus. It's not it's not an esteemed position. He's like, I'm the procurator mm. in Jerusalem. It's like, or in Caesarea. It's like, good for you, dude. He got a, a noble position, but it's one of the most ignoble positions that you could get of, of all the noble positions. So how do you have Gentile people, and the word Gentile means non-Jewish, non-Jewish people believing in a Jewish Messiah, especially when you add to that, that this Jewish Messiah died at the hands of Rome. What? So we killed him as a criminal, and you want me to believe that he's some divine person and he's Jewish. So both of those things make it very difficult for the gospel to go to the Gentile world, and so Luke has to handle that. But the second thing Luke has to explain to these Gentiles, these non-Jews, is why the Jewish people haven't believed in him. Well, what do you mean? So you want me to believe in this Jewish Messiah that even the Jewish people don't believe in? They hand them over to be crucified by Pilate. They said, crucify, crucify. What? They're persecuting the followers of Christianity, the followers of the way. And that's why it's spread throughout the Roman world. Why would we embrace this? Why, why would we believe this? So two difficult things that Luke has to do in proclaiming the gospel to the Gentile world. So even to call back to our conversation we had with Bruce, Bruce Fisk about Matthew, when you'd mentioned that, you know, why haven't, why hasn't the Jewish world fully embraced the Jesus as their Messiah, what you're not saying, and I'm, I'm kind of interjecting this mm. even to correct some popular nomenclature that we have, yeah. what you're not saying is that there was Jews and then the church, right? Because at this point, Luke's church was Jewish. So the overwhelming majority of followers at this time of Jesus are still Jewish. They're, they're messianic in that sense. So it's not like you have the Jews and then the church. It's just 
overall the Jews in Rome had not accepted him. The as Jews in Jerusalem. The Jews. Yeah, in I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Jews, yeah. Jews in Jerusalem. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They have not accepted it. That's correct. But Christianity has not made a break from Judaism. They mm -hmm. still are presenting themselves as the true Judaism. And this is this inner Jewish debate between the Jews and the Christians. Yeah. Yeah. And the Christians are just viewed as a sect of Judaism at this point as well. That's correct. And we'll cover that when we get to the book of Acts, because that becomes yes. an important thing for Paul. A couple times in the for the first 15 chapters, it's, it's a lot happened in there. Okay. So uh, you'd mentioned those two things that are happening. So he has to, you know, he's explaining to Theophilus how the Jewish Messiah is relevant to the Gentiles and then kind of defending, I don't know if you want to call it defending, but defending why the Jewish world hasn't, or explaining why the Jewish world hasn't embraced their Messiah then. Uh, what are some ways that he goes about doing this? Well, he begins by, by maybe unpacking that, the second element there. Why have the Jews not embraced Jesus? What's going on there? And the thing to understand that's very significant is that the kind of kingdom that Jesus was bringing is not the kind of king, kingdom that they were expecting. That's central and fundamental to the New Testament and even understanding some parts of the Old Testament. They were certainly expecting something different. And we talked already previous podcast, why in the world John the Baptist is questioning if Jesus is the Christ or not? It's because mm -hmm. Jesus was not doing what even John the Baptist was expecting. So let's begin in chapter one by looking at two parts of the story that we often skip. You know, we talked about how Luke chapters one and two are so commonly read every year at Christmas time, because that's where you get the nativity scenes from mostly, you know, Matthew one and two a little bit, but more so the gospel of Luke. Yet there's two parts in, in chapter one, uh, one's called Mary's song and one's called Zechariah's song. Mm -hmm. And Mary's song, as I think you alluded to a while ago, that's called the Magnificat. Mm -hmm. It's very often overlooked, especially amongst Protestants, and partly probably because, well, Matthew, Mary's Catholic. And it's yeah. like, no, Mary is not Catholic. Mary is Mary. Mm -hmm. uh, that's all she's Jewish, is. too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's Jewish and she's just Mary and she's not Catholic or Protestant or anything. That, that stuff didn't exist. But when you look at Mary's song in Luke chapter one, it's very nationalistic. She begins by thanking God because he's fulfilled his promises to Abraham in verse 55. Mm -hmm. Throughout the song, she praises God for his mercy in verse 50, and that God favors the humble, and God favors those who fear him, and he scatters the proud. But read this in this nationalistic sense of we're the good guys, and they're the bad. In other words, Rome is the, one who, the ones who are proud. Hmm. Those who fear him are us, the ones who are oppressed. We live in this occupied land of Judea, Samaria, Galilee, Palestine, whatever you want to call it, and uh, she goes on, she says, God fills the hungry with good things and sends the rich away empty, verse 53. Hmm. Now, we might want to read this as we commonly do in light of our personal piety, but Mary means, no, God's coming to restore Israel and to destroy Rome. It's Rome's appetite for more and more and more, there's more and more wealth at, at any expense that Mary's speaking against. And Mary's like, God's finally come to bring redemption to us. And this is totally what she's expecting. Now, bear in mind, she's not wrong. It's just that Jesus is going to transcend this. So if we read Mary's song as like, okay, this is the way it really is. Like, no, this is what Mary was really expecting. It doesn't turn out quite that way. And we'll continue to unravel that as we, as we move along. The second part of this passage is, is Zechariah's song. And the same thing, Zechariah notes that God's brought salvation in verse 68, 69, 71, and 77. But he perceives that it's for Israel. Verse 69, he says, it's for the house of David. For Zechariah, the salvation is deliverance from our enemies in verse 71. And our enemies are Rome. Now, again, it's not to say that they're wrong. I'm saying they're iterating a nature of the kingdom of God as they understood it at the time and as they were expecting it. Little did they know that Jesus's kingdom is going to rule the whole world and that it's going to include the nations. As we talked about, maybe the, one of our first episodes in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus comes along and says, Rome's not your enemy. The devil is. And their answer is, what do you mean Rome's not the enemy? Mm -hmm. Rome is the present empire that's occupying us. Rome's the, the present empire that's, that's squishing us and causing all these problems for us. And we have 2,000 years of history of empires doing this. Rome's simply just the one that's doing it now. Of course, there are enemies. And so this whole message of Jesus is going to be difficult for them to understand. This is why the disciples and many others have trouble understanding the teachings of Jesus. We, we mentioned this in the gospel of Mark study, I believe. And that is Mark comes along and says, 
you know, Jesus asked the question, who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am in Mark chapter eight? And Peter says, you're the Christ. And she's like, exactly. And we're going to go to Jerusalem and the son of man is going to suffer many things. And it says that Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him because Jesus, that's not what we're looking for. And Jesus like, uh, get behind me, Satan, because the kingdom that you're thinking of this nationalist kingdom where Rome's the enemy and we're the good guys that are going to get saved from this. That's actually the idea of Satan. That's the way he works, but not the way I work. It's just so funny. Cause I'm even as you're, you're, you know, going through that narrative, that's still such a relevant message for us today. Cause I mean, like I would say up until 10 years ago, the narrative is, you know, in the, in the Christian world, though, it's the Democrats that are the problem, right? They're, they're the, the evil ones. Well, now yeah, now it's have, actually yeah. gotten to the point where you actually have more of a split, I think, yeah. where it, you have these tribalistic camps, but it's like, we're, we're coming up against the same issue. And I think we're missing the same point in the church of, the, of what the gospel is, because we still continue to read this through just a nationalistic, individualistic, Americanized lens. Yeah, I think it's worse today than it ever yeah. has been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. If the message of what Jesus was saying is not what the Jews were expecting in their term, the messianic expectation, how was it different? What was rubbing them so wrong? So let's go to Luke chapter four to kind of look at the story of Jesus in the city of Nazareth and figure this out. So again, to give you a little bit of context, Luke chapter one, Luke chapter two, the birth stories, the Christ is born, Luke chapter three, John the Baptist is preaching. John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. Then you have the genealogy of Jesus. Beginning of Luke chapter four, he goes off into the wilderness and is tempted. So when we get to Luke chapter four, verse 16, this is the beginning of his ministry. In other words, we might be four chapters into the gospel of Luke or three and a half chapters in, but this is the beginning of his ministry. So Luke mentioned- well, And actually, actually, before we jump into yeah. that, just real quickly, shouldn't it be interesting to note that this is the one gospel that doesn't immediately- call back to the old Testament and it's in its first opening verses. I'm talking literally the way the gospel opens up. This is a, you know, an observation Mark immediately quotes Isaiah and Malachi and yeah. Exodus. Right. You have Matthew immediately quoting back to, or, you know, hearkening back to a genealogy. You have John starting with in the beginning, right. You know, so it's Genesis language. And it's just, I just always found it interesting that Luke he, he definitely is sitting in there, especially in chapter one. And you, you have all this Mary for Samuel things happening. Like, you know, there's definitely a lot of old Testament there, but it, it starts off just in a different way where he's saying like, Hey, I'm an historian and I'm doing these things differently. So I just, I always found that to just be a, a very strange observation, how it's not immediately starting with the old Testament. Yeah, that's, that's fair. But let's, let me just reiterate in case the listeners don't track exactly with what we're saying though. Luke does say that I'm writing to you, Theophilus, to tell you about the things that have been fulfilled among us. Yes. So it begins with fulfilled and mm-hmm. it ends with fulfilled. And I think we already mentioned that. And then chapters one and two are saturated mm-hmm. with this Old Testament context. I mean, almost everything that's happening in these mm-hmm. stories is paralleling something. And of course, in first Samuel in particular, because it's, it's portraying Jesus as the king mm-hmm. and not just the Messiah, the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. So in that sense, it's saturated there. And then, of course, the genealogy of chapter yep. three kind of goes all the way back to Adam. To Adam instead of Abraham, yeah. Yeah, to Adam. And so you have this fulfillment motif running mm-hmm. through these chapters. But yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. just different observation. Yes. Anyway, go ahead. You were going to jump into chapter yeah. four. So chapter four. So it begins in chapter four, verse 16. And Luke tells us that Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And it says, as was his custom. So Luke seems to indicate Jesus did this a lot. He would go into the synagogue and teach. Now, what's important about this is the fact that this is the only time in the entire gospel of Luke that Jesus is ever in a synagogue. So it appears that Luke is using this episode, Jesus in in the synagogue in Nazareth, as kind of the paradigmatic example of Jesus going into a synagogue. So he goes into the synagogue and it says, he asked for the book of the prophet Isaiah and it was handed to him. Sometimes you might hear, by the way, oh, it just so happened that that week he went into the synagogue, (laughs) Isaiah scroll was what was being read. Now, the fact that he has to ask for the Isaiah scroll and it's it's not already opened. Mm -hmm. The custodian in charge of the synagogue, one of his jobs is to make sure all the scrolls were open for that day's reading. Mm -hmm. So the fact that the scroll is not open and he has to open it up says Jesus is specifically asking for the scroll. And then he quotes it and he's quoting Isaiah 61 verses one and two. 
Now, if you happen to have your Bibles handy and you're listening to the podcast, maybe stop and pause and read 61, one and two for a second and then pick up the podcast now. Okay, just kidding. So, but verse 18 says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And sitting is, by the way, the, the posture of a teacher. It's called the seat of Moses. And so he's sitting in the seat of Moses. He's going to teach now. And all the eyes in all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, the scriptures fulfilled in your hearing. And they were all speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Okay, now if we stop there, it's like, okay, no, there's no conflict here. He comes in and says, I'm here to quote the book of Isaiah 61 verses one and two, which is a message of deliverance to the exile. There's actually a little bit of Isaiah 58 that's mixed in there also which is interesting because the Isaiah 58 part that's mixed in is a prophetic rebuke to the nation for not doing justice to the oppressed and the needy. Hmm. But they probably just glossed over that part because Isaiah 61, this is great. But we're going to note something later that Jesus actually skips the end of 61 verse 2, what we call, obviously they didn't have verse numbers, but he actually stopped in the middle of the verse. He did 61.1 in the beginning of verse 2, and then he stops. They don't think anything of it. Okay, no big deal. And one reason why they probably didn't think anything of it is a common interpretive practice at the time of Jesus was that if you quote a part of a verse, it's the same as quoting the whole thing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, yeah. You Mm -hmm. quote one verse, and Mm -hmm. you can even quote a verse from like the middle of a passage, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but the whole passage is in mind. This Mm -hmm. is really important when you get to Paul, by the way. It's like, oh, oh, Paul just quoted this. Actually, if he quotes this, he's quoting the whole thing. Mm -hmm. The whole thing's in mind. Nonetheless, no big deal. Jesus has come to preach the gospel to the poor, come to bring release to the captives, which is the oppressed. And their mind is, we're the captives. And of course, we're the ones in exile and Rome's the problem. This is great news to us. Recovery of sight to the blind, release of the oppressed for those who are downtrodden, and the favorable year of the Lord, this, this year of Jubilee. Now, the significance of all these is the fact that you have this economic system in place now, in other words, land is going to be restored, forgiveness of sins. And and all that means that we're going to get our land back. And if we get our land back, we're going to have freedom and relief from oppression because now we can work the land and make our own income. And we're going to be great. Their mindset is this is the overthrow of Rome and the restitution of Israel and this Jewish nation. No problem at all. They spoke well of them. Now, mind you, we believe that Nazareth may have had about 400 people in the village of Nazareth. If you go to Nazareth today, it's kind of a bustling city up at the top of this hill. Get an opportunity to go there. What you might want to notice is that it's in a bowl and it's like a rocky bowl. There's just nothing in the middle of this, at the top of this mountain. If you go to the edge of the mountain, and it's gonna, they're going to run them off the cliff and want to throw them off the cliff. If you go to the edge of that mountain, you're looking about 900 to 1,000 feet down below to the Jezreel Valley which is this lush, beautiful valley of tremendous agriculture. But you can't live in Nazareth and work down in Jezreel. Mm. And, and Je- in the Jezreel, it's just too far of a walk daily to get there. So there's very little economics, very little economy, very little to do. That's why in the Gospel of John, Nathaniel's going to go, what good thing can come out of Nazareth? Mm-hmm. It, it's a podunk city. It's a rival city to Cana. And he's from Cana as it is. It's like, what good is it? But there's about 400 people or so, let's just somewhere around there, that live in Nazareth. Many of them are going to be related to Jesus. These are his relatives, cousins and cousins and, and distant cousins. And their answer is, Joe's kid. Who, who would have thought that the Messiah was going to be Joe's kid? Now, by the way, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. So the anointing means you're either being proclaiming yourself to be the priest or to be the king. And since he's quoting Isaiah 61, he's claiming to be anointed as the king. And they're thinking of him as his messianic king. And think of Mary's song and Zechariah's song, Mm -hmm. a nationalistic king who's come to relieve us from oppression from our enemies, and our enemies are Rome. And they speak well of him, all is fine and dandy. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He seems to incite them. So he continues on and he says this. 
verse 23, no doubt you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your own, your own hometown as well. It's like, Jesus, why are you inciting them? Because they're speaking well of, of you. What, what do you mean? They're not going to quote this proverb to you. They love you. They're, they're receiving you as the Messiah right now. But he goes on to say, verse 24, truly, I say to you, no prophets welcome in his hometown. You're like, that's not true, Jesus. You're being welcomed. They're just overwhelmed that it's Joe's kid. That verse doesn't seem to fit what's really happening. Mm -hmm. But let's continue on. Verse 25. But I say to you in truth that there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three and a half years, when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, meaning to anyone in Israel. But he was sent only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, and there to a woman who was a widow, meaning he was sent to a Gentile. Hmm. And there were many lepers, verse 27, in Israel at the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. So he refers to the two great prophets, and they're kind of the first, the, quote, the first two prophets, because mm-hmm. that's you know when the office of king comes along in the books of Samuel. Elijah and Elisha are the two first two prophets. And the answer is they didn't go to the Jews. They went to Gentiles. And verse 28, all in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. Mm. And what may have happened is it may have clicked. Mm-hmm. Hey, you didn't quote Isaiah 61, all of verse two intentionally, huh? Because the last part of verse two that he didn't quote says, and the day of vengeance of our God. Mm-hmm. So there, yeah, we have this messianic passage that says the Messiah is coming to restore our land, to restore our freedoms, to open our eyes and to set us free and to bring about the year of Jubilee and to bring the day of vengeance on our God. And the Jews are like, you're not doing that, are you? And it says they were all filled with rage when they heard this and they cast him out of the city and they led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff, which is like 900 foot fall. I mean, it's, it's a big fall. But passing through the midst, he went on his way. So again, there's this divine protection upon Jesus somewhat, right? And he, and he escapes with the crowd. So the first thing then is, why are the, you know, to Theophilus, why are the Jews rejecting their Messiah? And I think the answer is because he was not the kind of Messiah that they were looking for. They were expecting a different kind of king, and they didn't want that kind of king. Kind of so, interesting, right? I'm even going back to that phrase, because we take that, you know, verse 24, for granted, uh, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, right? It almost becomes like a parable or like a wisdom saying that people use invoke all the time. And I don't know if I've ever caught that. He actually invoked that prior to being rejected because yeah. they were digging him. So is what, or what you're saying is that he reads the scripture, he makes these statements, and then he actually lets them know, hey, this is why you guys don't like me even though they, they like him is because you guys just, it hasn't clicked yet. What I have said yet. Is that what's happening? And uh, I think it's similar to what happens in Mark eight and, and, you know, Matthew 16, all the, where, okay, who do you say that I am? You're the mm -hmm. Christ. Okay, great. I'm going to go to Jerusalem and suffer. No, Jesus, that'll never happen. I'm going to rebuke you. The disciples had the mindset of his kingdom that he's claiming to be Mm -hmm. of a certain nature. And the same thing here in Luke, when Jesus reads the scripture and says, I'm the one that's anointed, I'm the Messiah, I'm, I'm here to come. This is great. This is good news because they're thinking of what it means for them. And then Jesus goes on and says, well, let me explain to you what the kingdom is really going to be like. And that's when they throw them off. The okay. Head. Yeah. Interesting. So obviously, you know, you have this major just visceral reaction from the Jews to Jesus because some of them just wanted a nationalistic kingdom. They want to you know, make Israel, you know, reclaim what David had a thousand years earlier and to have this golden age where they could rule all the other nations, right? Like, is, is this the thing that they just wanted to restore to? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So how does Luke go about developing his story then and illustrating Jesus's, this message that's totally revolutionary. And then, but how does that actually fit within the Jewish worldview? That's a great question. Let me ask you pause for a second and note we need to stop sometimes as Christians too and go, well, they missed it, but we've got it all figured right. out. The hubris because <laughs> so often, I think in our churches, we've established a theology of saying, 
this is what the kingdom is like. And it makes me comfortable and I'm happy mm-hmm. with this kind of kingdom. Mm-hmm. And as soon as somebody else comes along and says, oh, actually the kingdom's this way. No, we have a visceral reaction as well. And I think we have distorted. I think we have to always be careful of the fact that the parable of the sower indicates that we're willing to distort the gospel and the kingdom to either alleviate suffering or to maintain comforts and securities and wealth and power and pleasure. We always have to be careful of that. And Paul's going to say this in, the, in, the, in Timothy. In the last days, they'll gather around themselves a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Mm-hmm. So I think what we think is, well, we have the Holy Spirit. So we have Acts chapter two already. So we now get it. They didn't get it until Acts chapter two. And there's truth there. But we shouldn't be so naive to think, yeah, but over 2000 years, we might have weaved here, weaved there, weaved back, you know, and we keep getting centered. Then we get off to the left then we can get centered then we get off to the right. How does our gospel and our kingdom match up? And I think that's an, an important question. So here's what he does now. Follow the storyline. In Luke 4, Jesus announces the kingdom, and this is what it's like. And they're expecting a nationalist the kingdom, as Mary and Zechariah were, and they don't get it. In Luke chapter 5, we then have the confrontations with Jesus and the religious leaders. And basically, kind of what Mark does, where Mark fronts the confrontation with the religious leaders in chapters 2 and 3, and they want to kill him by the end of chapter 3 in the Gospel of Mark. Mm-hmm. So also, Luke tells us about this conflict with, with the religious leaders. And Jesus comes along and says, okay, here's the deal, guys. Let's go ahead and read it because it kind of gets to be a confusing passage. Luke chapter 5, verse 36. He says, he was telling them a parable. No one tears a piece of new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, he'll both tear the new and the piece from the, from the new will not match the old. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the wineskins and it will spill out and the skins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wishes for the new, for he says the old is good enough. It's like, okay, Jesus. I mean, I've heard a lot of parables before, but this one's not like explicitly clear. Yeah. And I think what he's doing is he's saying, hey, look, you guys have these old wineskins and your old wineskins are these nationalistic kingdom of God thinking where you're the good guys. Everybody else is the bad guys. The kingdom is for you. And God's going to come and restore your kingdom and punish everybody else. And Jesus like, I'm bringing new wine. Now, what we shouldn't do with this is go, oh, well, the Old Testament was old stuff. Mm -hmm. The New Testament's the new. No, what they had understood about the old stuff and the way they understood the the, the way they had understood the Old Testament, that was the old wine, but they hadn't understood it correctly. So Jesus is bringing a correct understanding of the Old Testament, but it's new. If you know about wine skins, you know, made out of animal skins, they expand as the wine ferments. So an old wine skin's already stretched out. You put new wine in that skin and it's going to ferment and it's going to expand more and the skin's going to burst. So Jesus is already telling us, or Luke's already telling us the story of saying, look, the old stuff is gone. I mean, you religious leaders and those who are rejecting the kingdom of God, I have to do away with you. And then what happens next, we go to Luke chapter six and Jesus chooses the 12. Luke six verses 12 through 16. Same thing happens in the gospel of Mark. They want to kill him and by the time we get to Mark chapter three and Jesus then decides to choose his own 12. The choosing of the 12 is this new Israel. Again, not replacing the old Israel, Mm -hmm. but the fulfillment of God's covenant promises to Israel are going to happen through this new 12 because the old have old wineskins and they cannot embrace the new. So this is how Luke has set it up. So now with that in mind, then we go to Luke chapter six. And we get what we call the Sermon on the Plain or the Sermon on the Mount, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. And it kind of begins in verse 20. This is Jesus' first public proclamation. In other words, you could say he goes into the Nazareth, but that's like a few hundred people. So now Luke 6 is his major proclamation. The religious leaders have rejected him. They're the old wineskins. He has got the new wine. He chooses the new 12. And here we go. This is the new kingdom of God and the new message of the kingdom. If we read Luke 6, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, in this context of this is the proclamation of the kingdom, and then the next thing to note is it's radical. It's revolutionary. It's not what they were expecting. It undermines everything. And the key thing I would say is that it undermines empire. And I'll note this now, and I think you and I have talked about this before, and I mentioned this on a podcast on one of the Zoom Bible studies I was doing. When people hear about justice, especially evangelicals, 
their antlers gonna kind of go up, right? Their antenna, like, uh, okay, where is he gonna go with this one? And their major fear is gonna be, especially maybe conservative evangelical community is gonna be, he's not talking about socialism or communism, is he? Mm-hmm. And the answer is no, we're not talking about any of these systems. We're not talking about capitalism or communism or socialism or Marxism or any of these, because all of these systems are man-made systems. None of these represent the kingdom of God. None of these represent the kingdom. They might represent this part and this part and this part, Mm -hmm. but none of them have it all together at all. Mm -hmm. And the way I would say it would be this, the ethic of Jesus' kingdom cannot be applied by a nation. It won't work Mm -hmm. because as soon as you say, as the president of your country, I'm going to, I love you so much because that's what Jesus told me to do. I'm going to lay down my life for you. Then that foreign other empire is Mm going to come in and invade you and destroy you. You're not going to survive. Now the church, what I prefer to call the people of God, we can apply this ethic Mm -hmm. and we can apply the economic ethics. We can apply the social ethics. We can apply the moral ethics. We can do this as an entity. And so no, you know, Acts chapter two, they were Mm -hmm. doing this. They were actually literally fulfilling this. But they were living as a community within the midst of, an, of, an, of, an, of a nation and of an empire. So the next thing I'd say is Jesus' ethic is revolutionary, and it's absolutely counter-imperial and counter-cultural. But it's, it's violently against the Roman Empire. And we're going to bring a scholar in, a biblical scholar that I'm really excited about in a few weeks to talk about the Gospel of Luke and really kind of all the Gospels and Jesus and the kingdom and how Jesus' kingdom is anti-imperial. And he's just a world-class biblical scholar on uh, ancient Roman early Christianity. So I'm looking forward to that. All right. So with that in mind, then here's, here's where we go. All right. So when we look at this, the way Luke has framed it, if you remember Matthew's sermon, he has these eight beatitudes that begin it. So blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. And we mentioned that Matthew has the woes because it's blessings and curses Mm because it's covenantal. He has the woes in Matthew 23. Luke puts them together. So let's look at Luke. Do you want to read? Or I don't know how your, yeah. your voice is, how you're doing with the cold. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll try it. We'll see. I'm so still mending Look at the Luke cold, so. 6, 20 through 26. Luke okay. 6, 20 through 26. And if you're able, if you're listening at home or wherever you might be, if you're not in the car and you have a Bible available, I really encourage you to get it out or maybe to kind of go back and listen to this podcast again later, because you're going to want to really look at these verses carefully. So go ahead. Any verses? So we're going to read on the shared one. Which, which version are we reading out of here? Look at you, NIV guy. Yeah, only because the church had, and that's what everybody had in their pews. Okay, yeah. So Luke 6, 20 through 23. So looking at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the son of man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. So then we go to 24, Luke 6, 24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well-fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets, which man, <laughs> this contrast is just so. Yeah. It's really stark, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So what you'll notice is that there's, you don't, I was going to say, you don't get this contrast in, in Matthew. Matthew no. just flows in a completely different way where this, like this hurts this. Yeah. 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 And, and I think we have to wrestle with this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to have to wrestle with this a lot. So let's look at this carefully. There are four blessings and four woes. And the four blessings and four woes are each then fall with for yours is. So blessed are you who are poor for yours is the kingdom of God. Uh, But note the first blessing for you who are poor and the first woe for you who are rich. And the contrast, you who are poor, you're blessed because yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich because you've already received your comfort. And keep that in mind when we skip to Luke chapter 16 in a couple episodes where we have the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Well, actually, let's jump in real quick because yeah. I remember having this dialogue with someone years ago when I was first just exploring some of these issues. And, and I noted how it was interesting how 
in Luke, he did not include blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Correct. And, and so my, my friend immediately wanted to harmonize and just say, well, Matthew includes it. So this is what he meant. But when you, when you look at the compare and contrast here, yes. well, then why would there be woe to them if they were rich in the spirit then, if we're just saying this thing, like there's no woe for that. That's actually a good thing. Right. Yeah. So, and the rich is clearly for you have your comforts. Yes. Th- th- I'm just talking it's, about material. It's clearly a material prosperity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the poor has to be material poorness. Yeah. Now Luke is certainly going to expand the category of poor as we go through the gospel of Luke. So Zacchaeus, the tax collector, he's one of the poor. Mm-hmm. This woman who comes in and just anoints, anoints him with his perfume. She's the poor and. The poor are the outcasts, the marginalized, those who are on the, on the outside of culture and society, whether it's material poverty or social poverty, uh, social exclusion. And remember, this is a, a society where I do this for you, you do this for me, and we kind of take care of each other that way. So I'll give you honor because you're going to give me a job. So the marginalized are the people that you don't do anything for. And I think as you said in the opening episode, this is going to be like basically 90% of people, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. And, and again, that, at this right. point, it's everyone who you see. But we're now talking <laughs> about the poor can be socially excluded or, or and marginalized as well as economically marginalized. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's look at the second one. The second one is blessed are you who hunger now versus woe to you who are well fed now. Mm-hmm. The third one, woe to you, blessed are you who weep now versus woe to you who laugh now. And then Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the son of man, Mm. as opposed to woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. Mm -hmm. Now, let's also note, uh, I was going to be sarcastic and I might as well. Uh, Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, insult you and reject your name as evil because of the son of man, not because you were a jerk. Mm. I, I think there's, there's so much of, Western Christian world where we're perceived as being jerks. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't count when they hate me because of that. In fact, when they hate me because of that, I'm not doing what Jesus commanded me to do. Mm-hmm. They're excluding me because of the son of man. Jesus goes on to say, then rejoice in that day and leap for joy because your reward in heaven is great. Now, again, heaven is not some spiritual kingdom up there. Heaven is where God dwells. And so there can be a sense where you're blessed now because you're a member of God's heavenly kingdom, as well as that eternal kingdom when the new Jerusalem comes down to heaven to the, to the earth. All right, now contrast that one. So when people hate you and exclude you and insult you and reject you because of me versus woe to you when everyone speaks well of you. And then look at the final ending of each one of these. The blessed one is rejoice and be glad because that's how they treated the prophets. And the woe to you is who are spoke well of, because that's how they treated the false prophets. Mm-hmm. Because why? Would you venture a guess at that, Vinny? Why do you think they spoke well of the false prophets versus they spoke poorly about the true prophets? A prophet is a covenant enforcer. Yes. And so if the true prophet is calling the people to repentance and, and casting judgment. If you do not do this, then expect this. Whereas I'm assuming a false prophet is not doing those things. A false prophet is going to be encouraging the very behavior that they should be, that a prophet should be condemning. Yeah, exactly. Another way of saying it might be the, the false prophets are saying the things that we want to hear. Yep, so yep. why would I condemn them? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm okay with my not giving to the poor, not taking care of the needy and the, the, the widow and the orphan and the immigrant that's among us. I'm fine with this. And this prophet and that prophet, we got 400 prophets all said that we're fine. Mm-hmm. And then this one guy comes along, Micah, shut him up. Mm-hmm. Malachi, shut him up. Mm-hmm. Right? Isaiah, cut him in half. Right? The prophets were saying, as you said, you are not following the covenant. And the covenant says there shall be no needy persons among you. Deuteronomy 15. There shall be no poor among you. And when there are, it's because you're not doing your job. And so who wants to hear that? We mentioned the fact at the beginning that this is radical, it's revolutionary, and it's undermining the Jewish expectations, but it's also undermining Rome. And what you have to re- bear in mind is this patron-client relationship thing that we talked about in our first episode, and I won't repeat that for now. I, everything in that economy was done out of necessity. And for many people, it was because of survival. They simply don't know where tomorrow's bread's going to come from. Mm-hmm. And so if I give to you, to help you out because you don't have enough for even for today. It's going to cut into my portion for today. And so I'm going to have a little less today, but 
I might not have enough for tomorrow and you're not going to pay me back. Hmm. So I'll give it to that person ab above me because now they're going to owe me and pay me back. And so Jesus responds, follows up this blessed, 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 whoa, 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 with four commands. And the four commands are found in verses 27 and 28. He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who mistreat you. And again, if you have your Bibles at home, just underline love, do good, bless, and pray. Because mm -hmm. those four words are commands. Again, the first thought is like, why would I do this stuff, Jesus? But then he follows this with four illustrations. And if anyone hits you on the right cheek, turn them the other one also. Now, hitting you on the right cheek is an insult. It's a mm -hmm. backhanded slap. Mm -hmm. But that means you've been shamed. That means you've been brought down lower on the social, economic, political, religious totem pole. And your job is to do what? It is to defend your honor, to not allow yourself to be shamed. And she's like, look, offer them the other one also. If anyone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt. Give to everyone who asks of you. And then whoever, demand, whoever takes, do not demand it back. Now, there's a sense here where some have actually argued that Jesus is uh, undermining Rome and the very essence of Rome. And that is uh, Rome has pillaged us. Rome has imposed heavy taxation upon us. And so if they want to take my coat, I'm going to give them my shirt also. And the, the point of that would be actually, you're taking my coat, which I would use for my bedding tonight. Hmm. And I'm going to give you my shirt saying, you have not shamed me. But here's the reality. If I walk around without a shirt on, people are going to go, why do you not have a shirt? Because he has it. Hmm. And I'm going to bring shame on you. Hmm. And so that, that's something interesting to think about, that maybe it's nonviolent resistance. And so there is this sense of resisting what empire is doing to you and not just, oh, let's, let, we're going to suffer for Jesus' sake. There, there's a sense where he's saying, yeah, if you walk around without a shirt, they're going to be shamed and they're going to give you your coat back also. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing that's most significant. The third one says, give to everyone who asks of you. And so this is not a one, shaming thing that's happening. Yeah, not yeah. a shaming thing at all. Mm -hmm. The reality is this. The people who are asking of you are the poor. They're mm -hmm. asking all day long, the beggar at the gate. Mm -hmm. And the answer is, I can't afford to give to you because I have, have barely have enough for myself. And if I give to you, I'm not getting anything back. It does me no good. And now, again, we kind of come at this from a Western mindset where we have this Judeo-Christian uh, ethic. And we think, oh, yeah, this is a great idea. Give to those who, who can't pay you back. But in their mindset, it would have been, why would I do that? Mm -hmm. This makes no sense to them. It's radically countercultural, anti-imperial, undermining the economics of the whole system. But note, Matthew's gospel goes on to say, why do you worry about food? Why do you worry about clothing? Because that's the reality. If you give to the people who ask of you, the poor who, you know, that if we have the 90% of the empire who are at subsistence level or below it, well, the 30% at the very bottom of that rung who do not have enough food for today, they're the ones asking. Hmm. And it's like, why would I give to them? They it won't do me any good at all. And this is the revolutionary nature of, of this ethic then. Is there a way that we could pull that in from an application standpoint to today other than just don't be stingy with your stuff? I'm trying to create a one-to-one -one parallel and it just seems too simple to say, when you see the homeless do, I mean, like homelessness right now, especially, I, I don't, I, I don't know what it's like in Arizona, but California, it, it's unbelievable in terms of homelessness over the last five years, what's happened. And, and yeah. you, you have these homeless tent cities that pop up on the side of freeways. And I mean like tent cities, there's like, mm -hmm. I don't know how many people, is it, is it as bad in Arizona or does the heat kind of keep a lot of that? Well, certainly in the wintertime is very nice here. So I don't, I see a lot of homeless people on the freeways. Uh, on ramps and off ramps there. I haven't noticed them a whole lot of other places as I did in California. You know, when I worked in Bakersfield as a, a pastoring in the church there, there was really good stuff going on in that city. The churches for number one, were doing excellent, excellent work. Mm -hmm. They really were caring for the homeless and the city came alongside the churches and provided food restaurants and schools, schools that would throw away all the food. Cause it, you know, they can't 
Yep. We sell a carton of milk that mm-hmm. was never opened up, but the kid didn't drink his milk. They actually gave that to the churches mm. and said, hey, would you guys distribute this? If, if we supplied you with a van so that you have all the, and we bring the food to you, could you distribute it? And we mm-hmm. said, yes, absolutely. And so we began distributing it. And they have homeless shelters and all kinds of things. So I would often, if I gave some money to, to a homeless person, I would say, hey, go to the mission mm-hmm. because the mission would take you in. The problem is that the mission says you have to be clean. Mm. And so two things that happen there. Number one is it, there is a lot of drug addiction, but the drug addiction is, it's like, well, they're just doing drugs. They're doing drugs to numb their exactly. pain. Exactly. If you lived on yeah. the street, you'd probably do the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> and the next thing that happens is mental illness yes. is very high mm-hmm. when you're homeless. Yes. Being out in the elements all the time wears on you so much so that you have serious issues with mental illness mm-hmm. and the drugs are often a result of the mental illness trying to numb the pain. Yeah. It's not that simple. So what I realized in fact was in Bakersfield, the only people that are homeless are the ones that you really can't help. Uh, you can give them some money today and yeah, they might use it for drugs, but they might also get some food and shelter. There's almost nothing else that we can really do for them. I mean, it would be up to the state of uh, maybe the church to, to really provide a place for them, but it's going to take a lot of care because of mental illness. Mm-hmm. So that's not as easy of, of an issue, but I would say, I'm going to speak from my own context. I grew up in a context that said, well, Paul says, if a man will not work, yep. he shall not eat. Yep. And the reason why these people are homeless is because they're doing drugs. And if I mm-hmm. just give them money, they're going to go do bad things with it. Anyways, I'm really not helping them. I'm only, I'm only hurting them. Mm-hmm. That was the mindset I grew up in my, yep. in my church. Me too. Yeah. I think we need to get past that. And say, you know what? I can give them an apple. I can give them a bottle of water. I can give them a sandwich. I can take them into a restaurant and buy them, buy something for mm-hmm. them, whatever it might be. I try to keep bottles of water mm-hmm. in my car. And I try, if I have an apple, because I know I'm going I'm to a certain intersection this afternoon to drop my grandson off or whatever, and there might be someone there. But another thing that, uh, that's important is this, is look at them. Mm-hmm. These are people that we're afraid to get into a conversation with because we don't know what they're going to ask for. So when we, yeah. we walk out of the grocery store and they're sitting there, we try not to make eye contact with them. Well, that is really, really hard for them to when no one will even look at them. And even the people that put money in the coffer that they're, the hat mm-hmm. they might have while they're playing the guitar outside of the Safeway, they don't look at them. Mm. Well, these are human beings made in the image of God. So let's, yep. let's kind of think, Think of that level there. And I think we can begin to do some things on our own. And hey, you know what? I do have some extra money in it. It's not going to hurt me. And it might hurt a little bit, but it's okay. But then I think also we need to look at the larger social issues. And I've written some blogs on this. And I said, if we're going to be pro-life, I think one of my blogs is titled this, if we're going to be pro-life, then we need to be pro-all life. It's hypocrisy to say that we're pro-life but then to condemn that young girl who had an abortion. Yeah. If we're going to be pro-life, we need to help her through this. There are reasons why she's having an abortion. And it's not that simple. And we got to step up and say, and I know we had you know, a church in Northern California where we said, hey, we're going to help you adopt these kids. We're going to mm-hmm. adopt these kids for you. We're going to provide you with ultrasounds because mm-hmm. the number of uh, pregnancies of uh, abortions goes down radically when they yeah. have an ultrasound. Mm-hmm. But I think we need to go way beyond that also. We need to start going, how can we care for them? How can we nurture them? How can we educate them? How can mm-hmm. we provide for them? Uh, I think we look at issues like, for me, I, I preach this many times in my, in my congregation because the Syrian refugee crisis was mm-hmm. at its height while I was pastoring. I said, look, we are living at a time frame in which the greatest humanitarian crisis in the world is happening on our watch. We need to advocate our government to say, let them in. And people go, oh, you can't let them in because of they're going to bring all the guns and weapons. And all. it's like, we have the highest, the strongest vetting process in the world. Mm-hmm. Our government vets people better than any other government in the history of the world. So vet them and then let them in. Mm-hmm. Oh, but you're, you know, you're going to let terrorists in. We have a greater problem in our country from American terrorists yes. than we do from foreigners that are terrorists. So think about this. And I just simply say, we're not saying to to be stupid or foolish. They're going to take all of our jobs. Actually, Syrians, by the way, are typically well-educated, way beyond Mm -hmm. the average American in education. And what they do actually is they actually improve an economy because they're bringing their their education with them. So, and again, I'm not getting into, I know the issue, we should tackle the issue of immigration at some point in time. And I think we certainly Mm -hmm. will. 
but I think we need to start thinking about the, how do we do these things? And so I have no problem with saying, make a wall and make your border secure. That's fine. But make a door in that wall because people that are leaving absolutely crisis situations and fleeing for their lives need a place of refuge. And our churches should be of those places of refuge and let's, let's bring them in. Let's take care of them. So I, I think there's a whole lot of things that we need to grapple with. And I'm, again, I'm not advocating for an economic system. I'm not advocating for the Democratic Party's platform mm-hmm. and the Republican Party's platform or anything. I'm saying the church should be a voice for justice and peace and truth in the midst of all these things. What if our churches were getting together and pooling their resources together better than we do now? Mm-hmm. And then being a place where, where we as the church are helping the homeless, providing reading classes for people that can't read, providing tutoring and education and helping them with uh, resumes and getting jobs. What if we were doing these things? And by the way, we did these, some of these things in our, our the consortium of churches in Bakersfield. Mm-hmm. Where a lot of really wonderful things were, were happening. And there are churches that are doing these things around the country. Mm-hmm. What a difference it would make. And I'll say one more thing. And then as we talk about tithing, and I know a lot of pastors are really reticent about speaking on tithing. And I caught myself, I think I, I think I preached for like four and a half years and I never mentioned tithing once. Hmm. And I thought, you know, that's actually bad on my part because to disciple you would be to speak on tithing because it's mm-hmm. an, because blessed are those who give. It's more blessed mm-hmm. to give than it is to receive. But when I finally did speak on tithing, I said this, I said, look, the biblical requirement is not a 10th. Mm-hmm kind of the, the standard that's established in the Old Testament. But some of you in this room make less than $20,000 a year. You shouldn't be tithing at all mm-hmm. because you live on below the poverty level. You shouldn't be giving at all. Yeah. Some of you make a lot of money and 10% is not enough. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we shouldn't be giving as oh, 10% could be a good standard, but if you can afford to give more, give more. And this, this is the church that we're talking about. And you see, I think so many churches their budgets are so strapped, just providing for staffing. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we budget for mission very well. I think we should have less staff in some of our churches. Sorry, Vinny, I know you're kind of an ancillary staff member, right? But I think you do a vital role of, of discipleship and everything else there. But I think some of our churches, some of the bigger churches are, are overstaffed. And I think what we need to do is have more volunteers mm-hmm. to do that work. And then we should use that money for local missions. Mm-hmm and our local community. And I think we should actually do that even before we support missions overseas. And I think we should be doing both, but I, I really think we should be doing stepping up more and more with our local community churches there. And I, I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Yeah. And, and I would even say, gosh, there's a lot. I just don't want to say just because it, yeah, I know. it might be too close to home, but I, this is even where I would look at my own church context, yeah. which we've wrestled with this, like, okay, what percentage of annual budget goes towards staffing? And, you know, we've kind of worked on reducing some of that, but we actually put, oh, I, I forget what percentage of our budget goes to global missions, which is, it, it's actually pretty significant. Yeah. And then along with that, we, we actually have a facility in our sistering city, which is actually has become a city in the last 15 years that has just become wrecked at one point it became like one of the top four most dangerous cities in america mm. and it, it's pretty gnarly it's we opened up like a community outreach center in there and and i forget what we spend on that place a year it might be close to half a million okay. uh, but we have you know full-time staff members and then it's daily brown bags and awesome. you know it just it, a lot of those things where people could learn how to write resumes and you know we have a shower system that they could go through and all that right, yeah. but i've even noticed in there even spending millions of dollars a year whether it's through locals or global missions oftentimes folks and i know some so many great folks who are the person that you said who 10 percent doesn't hurt them and so they actually spend they sacrifice a lot you know a huge chunk of their income in terms of tithe what we call the tithe and offerings but oftentimes we have that mindset of the checkbook is the way that we serve Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we're still not developing a full um, theology of person. Right. And like one of the comments that you made that you kind of brushed over, but it is might be one of the most important things you said is these people are made in the image of God. Mm-hmm. Like everyone is, and and everyone has equal inherent value. And I think we lose that. And we, it's easy to justify because we retreat to things like 
well, look at my pocketbook. I might say this, but look at how much, look at the dent I made in my pocketbook or just getting caught behind political rhetoric and policy rhetoric. And it's like, that's not our lane. That's not what we're experts in. What we need to be experts in is we need to be the people who actually recognize that all people are created in God's image. And therefore we are treating people differently and we're letting policy go to the policymakers. Yeah. And hopefully we could influence them just in terms of how we are a light to the world, but we just need to think differently. Even if we're spending yeah. our money in the right places, it, I'm not going to say it doesn't matter because I think it does matter, but it matters equally as much as, and how, in terms of how we think about these things. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that we need in these places, like the center that you're talking about is we need the volunteers because we need mm -hmm. the people because it's one thing to give them food, to give them a place to stay or give mm -hmm. them a shower, but they need the relationships yeah. because we're called to make disciples. And so part of that discipling process would be the fact that we're giving you care and love and we're coming alongside you. Mm -hmm. And that and not, doesn't mean I'm like, I'm going to tell you about Jesus all day long. It just means I'm just going to show you about Jesus all day long. Yeah. And in doing that, and when we have these all staff run things, well, this, let's just be honest. We've both worked at large churches and you currently do now. Mm -hmm. And that is, the staff are too busy. Mm -hmm. they, they just can't stop and take the time to, to sit down with that individual as often as they would, as often as they need to. So I, I think we're missing that element of that. And that's what we're saying. Hey, all you listening on this podcast now stop and go, how can I be used? Mm -hmm. And some of you have overwhelmed at work and whatever it might be. Okay. That's great. So you're just going to provide financially and, and support the church that way. But the rest of us, we need to get our hands dirty and be active in the midst of community. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I don't know I, where we want to go from here. <laughs> yeah. So let's, well, let's, let's go ahead and continue kind of through this a little bit uh, and we'll cut it a little bit short. This might go a little bit longer. So if you're listening mm -hmm. in right now, we, we might go a little bit longer because that was a good conversation that we hadn't really planned on, but I think it's, I think it's just an important question because the people mm -hmm. listening are asking those questions and we yep. need to, we need to help them ask those questions. And by the way, I did a, a series of class zoom classes that I recorded and we posted them the first week of February. So if you look at the first week of February, 2022, there's like a class every single day. They were actually every week that they, we had them. I just backdated them. Mm -hmm. So they all kind of came together in a bunch. And we discussed this very question in like, I think week number five of that class. So the first week of February, 2022, I think it's called the kingdom of God and justice. I'm moving forward. So Jesus is telling them to do this, this revolutionary ethic, undermining everything that they're doing. But let me skip down to verses 35 and 36 now, because there's something very significant in there. Jesus says this, love your enemies, do good, lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons or sons and daughters of the most high hmm. for he himself is kind, ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Now we lose those verses sometimes, but here's the thing. Jesus is saying, when you do this, you're acting like God does. To be a son of the most high or a son or daughter or a child of the most high means that you have the attributes or characteristic of, of the parent. That's what son of was, was a figure of speech in the ancient world. And we're sons and daughters of the most high. And if you think about this, what Jesus is saying is do things for people lower on the social, economic, political ladder than you are. Well, why would I do that, Jesus? It doesn't do me any good. I need to look at the people above me because they're going to help pull me up. Mm -hmm. So this Roman context. And Jesus says, because that's what God does. Because by definition, every person is lower than God. Mm -hmm. Yet for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And God is love. And so God loves always those below him. And Jesus is saying, you also ought to love those are below you and not just those who are equal or above you. Uh, so very significant. And he goes on to say this, verse uh, 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, and they'll pour into your lap. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Again, another verse that we kind of gloss over because we think, oh, love your enemies and do good to them means I have to like everybody and be kind and be happy. Not what this is saying at all, because in fact, it says when you do these things, you're going to be persecuted. Mm -hmm. You're blessed, but you're persecuted. So it doesn't mean that you're happy. And it doesn't mean that you have to like your enemies. It means you have to love them. And there is a difference. Mm -hmm. Loving someone, I might very well love someone that I really don't like. And I have trouble liking this individual. 
And again, let's always be clear. We're not talking about the person that's in an abusive relationship that mm-hmm. you have to constantly submit yourself to that. That's not what we're talking about at all. We're talking about in the normal situation of life, the normal ebbs and flows of life. If you're not being abused, love even your enemies. But, but even just- that actually might be a good illustration because I could imagine a woman who is abused by her husband who says, I love this man. Yeah. I do not like him right now. And I know that what he's doing to me is, is wrong. And it could even go, I, I know many men who have yeah. been emotionally abused by their wives. So it's like, I love this woman. I know the person who I married. I know the, the woman who I saw mother, my kids. I do not like what I'm seeing right now at all. Right. And so I, I think it can work that way in, 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 a, in a different kind of way. Yeah. Yeah. But the one that's being abused needs to get out. Yes. Because yeah, the it most mean that you thing stay you can there. do is to get them help yes. and yeah. not continue to put yourself in that situation yes, exactly. and there's been too many churches i've yep. seen too many times where they counsel you and we talked about this was on the christianity today podcast series with mark driscoll where yeah. they're counseling these women this is your lot in life is to suffer under the husband give him sex whenever he wants make him his dinner whenever he wants yeah. and you're being abused and you have to stay and that that is wrong mm-hmm. that is not christ that is not christian and that's not acceptable and we'll talk about that when we get to first corinthians chapter seven later on yeah. The context here, Jesus says, you're going to get this good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. What he's talking about there actually is buying grain in the marketplace. And sometimes they put different things in the, you know, they, they change the scales. So they're just mm-hmm. going to rip you off. You're going to buy a quarter barley, but you don't actually get a quarter barley mm-hmm. because they've ripped you off some way. Just like if you shake the barley thing down, it settles and then fill it up and then put more in. It's, you, know, you ever go to Jamba Juice? And they're like tapping that thing, filling yeah, your yeah, cup up. Yeah. And you're like, there's still room in there. And there's yep, still yep, stuff left yep. in that thing. Shake some more for me, yeah. please. Right. And they don't because they're on this time clock thing. The yep. more people they can produce, the more money they make. I'm like, I want the rest of my jamba yep. juice, please. Just saying, when you shake it down and it settles, fill it up mm-hmm. and then press it down and fill it up again. <laughs> and he's saying, love means you do justice in the economic dealings of society. If you own a business, you treat people fairly. You pay your employees a fair wage. That's like not the capitalist way, is it? Because my whole goal is to make a profit. And just like, no, your whole goal is to be fair and just in the way you deal with your customers and your employees. And here's the problem. That means the guy in business next to me, he's going to sell shirts for less money than I can afford to sell shirts because I pay my employees a fair wage. And Jesus' answer is, so be it. Why do you worry about clothes? Why do you worry about food? Right? Oh, okay. Jesus says, I want, I'll provide for you. Your business might shut down, but I'll take care of you. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh. So love has this context of justice. And he's actually referring to Leviticus 19, which is the holiness mm-hmm. chapter. This is what love looks like. It looks like holiness and it does justice and righteousness. All right now, I know we've gone long. So here's what we're going to do. If we skip down to chapter seven now, what's going to happen in chapter seven is we're going to see a number of stories that are going to illustrate what love looks like. And again, what we tend to do is we read chapter six, oh, this great sermon on love, and then we go see Jesus do a miracle, and we don't connect it back to love because there's a chapter break in the way. And we think that miracles are just Jesus showing off that he can do miracles and heal Mm -hmm. people. But the miracles of chapter seven are illustrating what love looks like. So for example, and I'm going to skip over the first one because the first one we kind of talked about in our last podcast, I kind of glossed over it about the centurion uh, who patronage system, he, he built our synagogue. So Jesus, we owe him a favor. So mm-hmm. help, help us out, Jesus. But the next story in Luke chapter seven is that of a woman who's a widow and her only son dies. Mm-hmm. Right? This means this woman has no means of economic provision at all. Her husband is dead. She's a widow. And her only son has died. And what does Jesus do? He has compassion on her. And he raises the son from the dead. So raising the son from the dead, yes, Jesus can raise the dead. This is great. It's a prelude to his own resurrection. But the point of this is she's the poor. Hmm. And she's economically distressed. And Jesus is restoring her uh, wealth or opportunity, not necessarily wealth, but opportunity for provision back for her. This is, lo- this is what love looks like. She gave her back her life, essentially. The next story is going to be a, a sinful woman 
who comes in to anoint Jesus. And this is a really kind of an interesting story that I wish we had time to kind of flush out here in the podcast, but we, I'm just going to have to kind of be quick, quick with it. In the story, it's very likely that this woman had met Jesus out in the street earlier in the day or yesterday or whatever it was. And he forgave her sins. And she finds out where Jesus is at and he's at a meal and she barges into the meal. Now we talked about how the meals have this socioeconomic patron uh, benefactor system going on there. Mm-hmm. And so you sit where you're in, in the order of your honor and everything else. This woman barging in, she's a sinful woman. She lets down her hair. She's washing Jesus' hair, uh, feet with her hair, which is lewd, uh, seductiveness. It almost has a sense of, uh, of lewdness and of immorality. And Simon, the man who's hosting the dinner, who didn't take care of Jesus at all, he showed him no honor at all when Jesus walked into the meal. And Simon turns around and says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this was. And Jesus turns to Simon and says, hey, Simon, let me tell you a story. These two guys got forgiven of their debt. One got forgiven of more debt, one had less debt. Who loved more? And Simon says, well, I guess the one that was forgiven the most. And Jesus said, exactly. He said, Simon, I entered your home and you didn't give me water for my feet, but this woman hasn't stopped wetting my feet with her tears. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, which is a gesture of kindness. And Jesus answers, this woman poured perfume on her feet. And by the way, what, the reason why I said this woman probably met Jesus earlier in the day and now comes back because she has an alabaster vial of perfume, very, very costly perfume. It's probably her dowry. It's probably the only thing she has if she becomes without a man and without a son, and she may have been because she's a sinful woman, maybe a, maybe a prostitute of that nature. We don't know. This is all she has, and she uses it to worship Jesus. Simon, you have so no concern for the social conventions, and yet you're condemning this woman. And Jesus answers, this woman has done all these things. And then he turns to the woman, he says, verse 50 of chapter 7, if you're following in your Bible, it says, your faith has saved you. And then he says, shalom. Erene in Greek. It's go in peace. And what go in peace means, it means it's not just like goodbye. It means be restored to the community. The reason why you were an outcast from, she's the poor. She's got this wealthy vial of perfume. It's all she has. But she's the poor because she's an outcast. She's a, a marginalized. And Jesus' answer is, no, I'm restoring you back to the community now. So this is what love looks like. It's these acts of kindness and mercy and compassion and restoring people to a position where they have what they need in order to get by. I feel like we could seriously spend another hour plus talking just on this topic. We got to end it, but this is, this is really exciting. And it's, it's been really cool just how each gospel, you know, even we're in the synoptics. So they're, they're so similar and whatnot, but man, each one of these things, when you dive into it, they're not, they're just not saying the same thing in different ways. They are, but it's so different and they're so unique. And to get this background and context just really helps you understand, like you're actually hanging out with Luke or hanging out with Matthew or hanging out with Mark or, or whatever. So this has been a lot of fun. Hope the audience is getting a lot out of that. And we, we'd love to hear from you too. Like, yeah. what are you getting from these podcasts? And yeah, uh, great. you know, part of this is we want to equip people in a way where they're growing and we want to make sure that we're hitting the mark. So give Rob feedback, send him an email, send him a Facebook message or whatever, and let us know, Hey, yeah, this is the thing that we're digging. Or maybe we're not understanding when you guys talk about this, like we, we'd love to know that feedback. Cause this isn't just for us. I mean, we, we love to talk on our own, you know, when we're on an hour podcast, it's probably a two or three hour zoom call. Anyway, yeah, we, we have us, our own yeah. conversation. So uh, let us know how we could equip you better, but man, this has been a, even personally, it's been a lot of fun. So, Hey, hope everyone's loving it. Come back next week and we will uh, continue on in our Luke series. See you then. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.